Some of the most crucial of foundations are that which are unseen. Take your homes, for instance. Their groundwork, their structure is virtually invisible. And yet the utmost importance to our daily living. So how this works for us day to day, philosophically or spiritually or morally or ethically, is on the groundwork of our own individualistic worldviews. Worldviews. Now, I know that that's a bit of a buzzword or a T-shirt of the week for some probably here. But worldviews are the basic stuff of, of, of human existence, the lens through which we see the world, the grid in which we see and study reality, the blueprint for how one lives and why. Every single one of us have this invisible foundation. Every single one of us, Christian or not, we have this invisible foundation and are constantly confronted with other foundations and worldviews. Constantly. We sit down and what? We watch Lion King. What's its worldview? Well, it's easy. It's a circle of life, right? And it moves us all through despair and hope. You guys know the words, through faith and love till we find our place on the earth unwinding in the circle of life. That's Mufasa's worldview. Or how about this? Kanye's worldview, right? That's all over the media right now. People are enthralled with his dragon energy. My worldview is this. My worldview is this. Taco Bell will fix everything. Taco Bell can and will fix everything, period. So what about yours? What is your worldview? Now, if you don't know what your worldview is, it's how you answer the probing question of meaning, meaning, of purpose, of the concept of nature, of self and society, largely determining our opinions on life's most important matters, say, abortion, euthanasia, same-sex relationships, environmental ethics, public education, the church, community, how we spend our money, or how we date. But here's where I may get myself into trouble. Because I believe every, every, every single worldview is a byproduct of how one interprets God. How you interpret God. Every atheist to every Catholic priest live a certain way because of how they interpret God or the lack thereof. God doesn't exist, so my worldview is this. God does exist, so my worldview is this. God is like this, so my worldview is this. But, 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 what happens to one's worldview when competing views of the biblically defined God arise? See, now we're in hot water. Let me explain. We're in chapter three of the book of Hebrews. The stranger who we're calling this unknown, mysterious, powerful preacher man who wrote the book of Hebrews. He rings the alarm again with exhortation and with challenge to Christians, to the church, to unchristians, and to all competing worldviews in this room, then and now. So what we have to know about the book of Hebrews as we study it, especially those here who are in our discipleship groups, is that Hebrews makes powerful and motivational impact by going from heaven to earth and then from earth to heaven. Meaning strategically back and forth from the betterness of Jesus to confrontation. From the superiority of Jesus to confrontation. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. It asks, if this is true of Jesus, then what of you? 
If this is true of God, then what of your life? What of your worldview? The stranger is constantly smashing like the flashing red button with the need for device, or excuse me, decisive action. So today, Collective Church, is no different. Today is another exhortation, another challenge, and another confrontation. So you guys ready to get into it? Let's, let's put on our scuba gear and dive in. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're going deep. I just want to keep going so bad. Jump in. All right, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. We're making fast headway through the book, right? People who've been here, like, this is good. AJ? Yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> Therefore, starting in verse 1, holy brothers. Right away, we have so much. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we learned that the therefore means we have to slow down and go, what is it there for? So the stranger's connecting chapter two to chapter three. Remember, this is a sermon, like a transcribed sermon. Then he also says, and this is the first time the stranger addresses the audience. The first time in a few chapters, he directly addresses the audience. He says, holy brethren, holy church, brothers and sisters. Then he goes on to say, you who, are, who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. So from Hebrews 1 to now, Jesus has become superior in the cosmic and the divine and the angels and the beyond. Even in his lowliness, the stranger says, Jesus is still regal and royal He's this regal royal uh, messiah. But then the stranger goes from a superiority in the history of the cosmos to the superiority in the history of his, of his people. He's changing gears. We go from the stars to dust. And now he does one of the strongest comparisons yet. The strongest comparison. Remember, Hebrews invites us to constantly compare Jesus to everything else. This is what he does. He, just, he compares... The stranger compares Jesus with Moses, the Old Testament figure, Moses. Oh, I've been so waiting to teach this handful of verses because Moses is um, radically near and dear to my heart. So much so. If you could put, if you could make Mad Max and Dumbledore have a baby, that's Moses. Like that is what he is. I, just to show you how impacted I am by Moses, guess what I named my son? Jeffrey. So I just, <laughs> I named my son Moses, the Mo Man. Yeah, all right. But I know for many of us, I know for many of us, Christian or not, Moses conjures up a handful of differing opinions. Some think of, uh, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's classic, The Ten Commandments. So there Moses is this Charlton Heston, right? I'm assuming many of us remember that. That's for you, RJ. You're nodding your head. Some of us, though, may be younger than RJ. Some of us younger than RJ might remember the Prince of Egypt, right? So our Moses is this, like, fun-loving, chariot-racing, you know, Val Kilmore Moses kind of a thing. Some even think of Moses Malone. That's my one and only sports reference I've ever made. I don't even know what sport he plays. But each portrayal, each portrayal falling and failing severely short to the one and true Moses, 
who was, and I'm gonna allow Numbers 12 to show us, this is what it says of Moses, verse three of Numbers 12. Moses was very meek, more than all the other people who were on the face of the earth. Fun fact, you know who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> and I was the meekest dude on the planet. <laughs> Moses was a Hebrew. His mother dumping him in the river to save him from infant genocide at the time. He was found in the river by Egyptian royalty, the very culture and society which have enslaved his ancestors, who then was raised in the finest education at that time, so he was brilliant. He's then torn between two people, those, his people who are enslaved, and his surrogate family, the Egyptians. He eventually kills some slave masters who are hurting Hebrew slaves. He goes all fugitive, like Harrison Ford style, runs into the desert, hangs out for decades as a humble shepherd, marries a woman, an interracial marriage, which was very controversial for that culture, and has a couple of kids. And then from there, he is used as the grand deliverer to free his people. He is then the supreme leader, giving them the law, helping them live their life under the Hebrew God worldview. He cared for them, feeding them, guiding them, loving them, fighting for them, training them. Friends, to the stranger's audience, to the Hebrew's audience, there was no more influential person than that of Moses. Just to put a cherry on top, let's hear it from God's own mouth himself. Numbers 12 in the Old Testament gives us this little chicken nugget. Look at verse six, should be on the screen. It says, he said, listen to my words. This is God speaking. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all the house. Those words should sound familiar from us reading Hebrews 3. This is where the stranger's quoting from. With him, and look at this, with him I speak face to face, clearly not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. No one had this level of intimacy with God in Hebrew history. Moses was the great center of Jewish Christian lives. Basically, you could say their entire worldview. He was revered. Most of them was the greatest Hebrew who ever walked the earth. And then in comes Jesus. Jesus has single-handedly dismantled and reconstructed the Hebrews' entire history, belief system, tradition, and lineage. So the stranger is saying what he's saying. He's playing with fire with this comparison. The stranger, the writer who wrote Hebrews is basically politically and religiously incorrect. It shocks the system. To get the full charge is the equivalent of somebody running in here and saying, there's somebody better than Jesus. We have to now decide if he's true or better than Jesus. We'd all go, <laughs> it brings serious pause. Now, by way of housekeeping, the stranger is not discrediting angels, prophets, or Moses. The dichotomy does not exist because Moses and Jesus are at odds. Far from it. They're bros. Read the Gospels. You'll see. The distinction exists not in heatedness, but in hierarchy. Moses matters. Jesus matters far more. Stephen Baldwin matters. Alec Baldwin matters far more. Make sense? Everybody getting it? Thus, thus, 
Jesus must merit our ultimate attention, Christians. He must merit the foundation of our worldview. Because that's ultimately what this is. If our worldviews are steadied upon the interpretation of God, then this ultimately makes so much sense why the Jewish Christians would be tempted, wouldn't it? To go back to old ways. This, I really want this to sink in. They are tempted to go back to the old covenant worldview. Their old covenant way of interpreting God. Think about it. These Jewish Christians, the strangers talking to, they're under persecution at that time. They're being oppressed. They're in fear of their lives. They are in deep suffering. And they've been told for centuries, for ages, that when this has happened before in their history, when they were under Egyptian slavers, under Moses and his God, guess what? They were delivered. They were delivered. This Jesus worldview, this Jesus God, this new covenant way of thinking, well, to be frank, it leaves much to be desired in this present undelivered suffering. Thus, could they be thinking, it's time to bounce. It's time to go. This Jesus thing didn't pan out. We don't like this God, this Jesus God. We don't get what we want. And it's right here, collective church, that we encounter today's exhortation. And it's easily one of the most single, it's easily one of the single most challenging exhortations and aspects of our humanity today. And it's this. It's the notion of faithfulness. It's the notion of faithfulness. And it oozes from Hebrews 3, like honey drips from a peanut butter Sammy. Look at verse 5. Moses was faithful, faithful, faithful as a servant. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son. Skip down to verse 6, or later in verse 6. If indeed we hold fast, if we're faithful to our confidence. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. Just to make sure we're all on an even playing field, I believe we should define faithfulness. So if you've got your cool Hebrew journals that Maxwell talked about, you can write some of this down. It's been defined as belief with the action to back it up. It's also been defined as adherence to belief in the face of adversity. You could also say a participation in belief. But here's the one I really want for our church. Essentially, what these Jewish Christians need to hear is the same thing we need to hear, being this. Faithfulness is choosing to love and serve God in spite of not having everything we want. One more time. Faithfulness is choosing to love and serve God in spite of not having everything we want. Hearing that simple definition, let's do a self-diagnostic. Can that be said of us? Friends, we live in a culture that is extremely comfortable with unkept promises. I mean, actors and industry workers here, how many times have you been told, we'll be in touch? Has anybody ever touched? No. <laughs> you laugh because every single one of you are like, eh, it's true. We live in a day where broken vows are more, expe more expected than kept, right? We live in a city which is not only 
tolerant of it, but even promotes unfaithfulness. And this has slithered in like a python into the church. See, if faithfulness isn't a cultural value, it's not very surprising that it would be a spiritual value. See, many approach faithfulness to any person, organization, or church, but especially the church, on the promise of this, wants being met. Wants being met. I will be faithful if my wants are met. And for us, when our wants cease to be met, or our wants change, which happens in this life, we then take flight to the next thing, creating a migratory life. From person to person, from discipleship group to no discipleship group, from discipleship group to a different discipleship group, from church to church. Simply, if you don't, it doesn't suit you, peace out. If it doesn't accomplish what you want, hunt for another. This is not faithfulness. This is not one of the fruits of the Spirit as listed in Galatians chapter 5. C.S. Lewis, who I'm pretty sure all of us know, wrote in uh, The Amazing Screwtape Letters. Um, People familiar with that book? An incredible, incredible book. When he put these words into the mouth of Screwtape, a senior devil giving advice to a younger def, you know, a devil nephew rookie named Wormwood. This is what the senior devil Screwtape says. He goes, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do the enemy's will, that being God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him, God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has forsaken and still, oh, base. That is what's most dangerous. Faithfulness. So as these Jewish Christians are thinking about leaving one worldview for another worldview of God, a God more comfortable, a God more familiar, a God worldview of where wants are being met, the stranger freaks out. The author of Hebrews freaks out and he says, and I just love his argument. This is essentially his argument. He goes, I know you're thinking about leaving. I know you're not pumped on this whole Christianity thing. I know you're not thinking it's all going to work out. And this is what he says. Look at verse 1. I know you're thinking about that, but please, in a two-word argument, consider Jesus. This is his entire argument. Two words, consider Jesus. He basically argues with us how my wife argues with me which is, Kesey, 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 ba 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 no, consider how dumb that is. Like, this is, no, consider how stupid that is. And I'm always like, right. <laughs> consider Jesus is the basis of his entire argument. Do you see what the stranger is doing? He is pulling them out of their worldview, their old worldview. Other translations say, Maybe you have a Bible that says this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Or they say, take notice of Jesus. This consideration motivation is used one other time in the entire New Testament by Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says this, and I love this. If I was in a metal band, I would name this. Consider the ravens. I love that. It's the only other time he uses it. Jesus says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. 
of how much more value are you than the birds. That's pertinent because it's used directly both times as to consider how it affects your life. No, 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 consider how it affects your life. Not to consider how we would when we go to an art museum and like, oh, this Picasso, I'm considering things. No, 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 no. To consider it as we would do a seismic change in our life. What type of decisions, desires, and determinations would be radically enhanced or transforms if we pause to consider or concentrate on Jesus? Consider Jesus. I want us to notice that the stranger does not say, find deep courage in yourself. He does not say, Tony Robbins, your way through this. He says, verse one, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful. This is the only time just for you to know that Jesus was ever called an apostle, which means sent one. Apostle means sent one. Moses was sent, but Jesus is the sent one with all authority. He's saying, yes, consider the one who was sent Moses, absolutely, but consider Jesus is sentness. Consider the one in light of your faithlessness, consider his faithfulness. But imagine, though, I want us to think of this in this moment. Imagine for a moment this argument. Consider Jesus. Consider his faithfulness. And you were suffering, or you were hurting, or you were broken. And I sat down right next to you with a slurpee in my hand and I said, but dude, Jesus is faithful. The argument seems a little weak. Does it not? Think about it. Why? I I believe it's because Christ's faithfulness is so broad, so tremendous, so all-encompassing, it can't penetrate. Meaning, to believe the Lord is faithful is a tornado of an idea which sucks in everything into itself. All forms of identity to his attributes are sucked in. It's this King Kong-sized doctrine of God. Meaning, God can't just be gracious. He has to be faithfully gracious. God can't just be generous. He has to be faithfully generous. This faithfulness means that we have his complete attention and to not undergird any of his shining qualities, to not undergird it with faithfulness, is to not understand any of those qualities at all, pure and simple. So in the Hebrew language, this word faithful is this idea of support. So look at this table, this stage. That's what it means. These legs are faithful. In the Greek, it means trustworthy, that you can trust God will not be broken, that God supports what he says, that God is consistent, Or as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon says, God writes with a pen that never blots. He speaks with a tongue that never slips. And he acts with a hand that never fails. But that's the meta. To zoom in on his faithfulness, we will see a microcosm of daily life application, which I'm assuming is what we're all here wanting. None more relevant to the Jewish Christians, and I would say every single one of us here today, of that being this. Because of God's faithfulness, ultimately showcased in Jesus Christ, you or I cannot scare him away. There is no faults, no slip-ups, no mistake, no disgust, no angry fits, no sin that can bring bring be a deterrence to his faithfulness. There is no sin too vile, 
too gross, too criminal, too repulsive to shake the living God. We can't get him to budge. We cannot shake God. We cannot change him. I read a book recently called Losing Susan. Has anybody read it before? Losing Susan? It's a book about a young Catholic priest who starts to lose his young wife to a brain tumor. And he starts daily taking diary notes. And as the disease grew in his wife, so did his need for care for her. And he describes having to do things for her that he would have never imagined. Cleaning her soiled sheets in the morning. Force feeding her because she wouldn't eat. Wiping her after using the restroom. And he continually would reflect upon God's faithfulness in doing this for his wife. And this is what he said kept him going. It was knowing that this was much like God's faithful care for us. That the Lord's daily faithfulness to be there at our bedside in our deepest suffering. Not simply remove suffering. There's a hope to come. But for now, he is a faithful presence. You see, what this husband did is he considered Jesus. And out of all the ways that we could consider Jesus or what the stranger says, you know, Moses was the law, Jesus gospel. Moses was a prophet, Jesus better than a prophet. The stranger doesn't even make that argument. That's a strong, solid argument. The stranger doesn't even do that. The stranger says, nah. Verse five, this is his argument of why Jesus is greater. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to him to be spoken later in verse six. But Christ is faithful faithful over God's house as a son. If you've been with us thus far, you see that the stranger, Hebrews, is obsessed with the son language. What makes Jesus stand out? It's It's not that he's just perfectly faithful, which he was. That's not where the argument goes. The argument goes to Jesus is the son. Jesus is the son. Yeah, Moses was a a servant in the house, but Jesus was the son of the house. The stranger's making this point over and over and over and over. And we must ask why. Why is he so obsessed with son language? Well, it's an important fundamental difference in category. And it's here. This is it. He alone is heir. He is the heir of God. Jesus is like royal baby Louis and Moses is like Prince Harry type of a thing. Moses ain't going to never get the throne. These people pumping out kids, you know what I mean? Even with all of his greatness as the mediator of the old covenant, Moses, the great deliverer, even if he wanted to, could not ultimately do, which was deliver fully God's salvation. Moses is an incredible deliverer. But man and woman, you and me, need a far better Red Sea crossing. We need a far more superior exodus. Thus, a servant sinner, which Moses was, even if he was perfectly obedient, in order to set men and women right from their sins, he could not do it. Sins being the action of choosing our wants over God. So simply, the Mo man was not able to take people into their full inheritance. Only the rightful, true heir could. So God does what no man could, And it was this, that he loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The faithful heir gives his inheritance to the unfaithful. Paupers become princes and rags become riches. 
The faithful heir was faithful even to death, the book of Philippians in the New Testament says. So, how the gospel truth transforms our Monday is if Christ was faithful to the highest level of agony for you and I, then any other lesser degree of agony for you and I is a shoe in So whenever the last time that you thought or attempted to think, God has not come through, God has forgotten me, I have been abandoned, maybe you're in that moment right now, remember this, consider this, what I'm about to read. It's a quote from a minister from the 1700s. Before the Lord will allow his promises to fail, he will lay aside his divinity. He will un-God himself. Meaning, Jesus will cease to be before he ever is not faithful to you or to me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And if we want to know to what level we believe that, we measure it this way. This is self-measurement right now for those who care. We know we begin to believe that, to accept his faithfulness, when we've expanded our faithfulness. Christ will not leave me nor forsake me, thus I can dare to be and to do, fill in the blanks. The stranger says this, verse six, notice he throws himself in this arena when he says, and we, we, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting and our hope. The results collective church from considering the radical faithfulness of Christ is a hold fastness for you and I. So what happens when we consider Jesus? We become more holdfast. That phrase hold fast probably is easy for some to think, hunker down, anchor in. That's not what he means. Remember, the stranger likes nautical imagery. Hold fast is a ship captain imagery continually checking his navigational course. He's consistently, this is what the hold fast means. He's looking at the map, he's looking at his compass, he's looking at the sea. It's what he's doing. as the captain makes headway through the murky and through the darkness. I read recently that Isaac Newton has this great line that whenever he, somebody walked up to him and said, how did you, how are you so brilliant with all of your discoveries? He would always and continually say, I keep them before me. I keep them before me. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence in his faithfulness. So we'll end with this. If I were to ask what you think would be whatever the reason might be that we struggle with faithfulness, with keeping headway, what would you think it would be? I believe, and this could be an oversimplification, so forgive me, but I believe our struggle with faithfulness in culture and in the church, I believe it's because it's too risky. We got trust issues. We don't want to get our hopes up. Arthur Brennan Manning, who I probably quote too much, but he says, faithfulness requires the courage to risk everything on Jesus, the willingness to keep growing, and the readiness to risk failure throughout our lives. So what the stranger wants these Hebrew hurting Jewish Christians to see is that this, where you're at right now, is your proving ground of your confession. What you're feeling right now, this is where you hit the faith button. 
Not just when life is successful in Pleasantville. What good is a lantern during the day? Faithfulness as an idea exists for darkness, dear church. You probably noticed Heber uses this house analogy. That's his way of saying the church of believers, or more practical, you and I. Be faithful because Jesus was past. Be faithful because you were having a calling, future. Be faithful because of the house, now. So yes, our faithfulness branches out from a personal faith in the Son, but faith finds its full consummation once it's practiced with others. Like, cool, you know how to play second chair trumpet. You will never know how to hear that song or play that song rightly or fully until you play with the orchestra. That is something Collective Church has tried to press since the beginning of our existence. A theology of faithful presence. A theology of engagement. A theology of commitment. A theology of orchestra playing. A theology of promise to Christ lived out in the church. Because if Christians can't be faithful to one another here and now, how will we ever be faithful to anybody outside the church? Faithfulness is risky. We believe, though, at this church, it's a powerful source of change in our lives. 99% of us are here because we want to grow and mature and see significant change in our life. Faithfulness, 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 faithfulness is the daring source of change. Many of us may not know that because many of us may not hold fast. Faithfulness is a daring source of change. So, collective churches, almost I want it to be for us this, this willingness to dare. I want it to be for us do we dare to stand faithful in our singleness? Do we dare to stand faithful? in our marriage? Do we dare to faithfully gather each and every week? Do we dare to be faithful in the temptation of giving up? Do we dare to be loving when rejected? Do we dare to be faithful when things don't go our way? Do we dare to love our enemies? Do we dare to let the church be the church here and now? To go and receive prayer between those trees and up against that shelf? To allow ourselves to be emotionally and spiritually vulnerable to others? to allow us to intercede. We are there. Go and be daring today. Do you dare to faithfully to sing despite of not feeling the need to sing or the desire to sing? Do you dare to faithfully worship a faithful God when it seems it's an unfaithful circumstance? Do we dare to believe his promises in our time of response? Do we dare to be faithful to this house, this church, most easily symbolized here and now, but do we believe that God is faithful through communion up here on my right and on my left in the stacked cups? See, this is a rhythm we remember his faithfulness to the point of death. And every week, did you know as we walk up here to receive communion, we're making this proclamation to other people around us saying, I proclaim to you in this action that I see that, I know that, and I live that by God's good grace, I hope to be like that. I see Christ's faithfulness, and by taking this communion, I hope to be like that to you here and now. So with that, let's pray.